Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. Powered by Leadership Choices. You know, there are so many different ways of, of explaining or talking about the scale of this shift that we need, and it, it's way beyond it's way beyond anything one can petition for or march for. Those of us in the global north in um, we've been brought up in this kind of cons- brought up to be consumers, not citizens. There is another world that is entirely possible that has limitless compassion, limitless love, limitless com- collaboration. Limitless care, limitless kindness, you know, the things that actually make life really, really joyful and wonderful. And those things are not limited and we can have unlimited growth of all of that. Welcome to Leaders Talk, the biographic interview podcast for better leadership, better organizations and a better world. My name is Carsten Draht and I'm one of the managing partners of Leadership Choices. My guest today is a very, very interesting person, and I'm looking very much forward to this interview with her. Um, Zoe Cohen is a coach, a consultant, um, used to be a senior manager in the NHS in uh, the United Kingdom, and is now a climate and uh, social activist and is working with Extinction Rebellion in the UK. She's one of the spokesperson of Extinction Rebellion UK XR, for uh, those who know the organization. And uh, she will walk us through her life story and how she developed from being a manager into being a coach slash consultant, then to become a climate activist, kind of leaving also a lot of um, conventions of our life, of business life, kind of behind her. Um, so very interesting conversation. Um, and we had her as part of our panel at the Open University, um, November 4. And I think everybody was like um, struck with awe listening to her, also a bit, you know, depressed um, sometimes because she very much, you know, puts things into a, a very big context and is very outspoken about the analysis of uh, researchers, um, the data that we have. And if you put that all together, that uh, it really, you know, you come to the conclusion that the status quo is no option. Um, and the question is, are we able as a species to um, kind of trigger these changes that we need in order to turn this crisis around? So this is the conversation with Zoe and we're jumping uh, right into it. And I'm very much looking forward to your thoughts. Um, if you want to share them with me, drop me a line, karsten.drath at leadership-choices.com. Looking forward to your thoughts. And now, right into the conversation with Zoe. A very warm welcome to Zoe Cohen. Uh, I find it always hard to describe a person, but with Zoe, I find it ex- uh, especially hard. Uh, Zoe has been in senior managerial roles. She is a coach and she is also a climate and social activist, um, amongst others with uh, uh, Extinction Rebellion. Zoe, welcome to Leaders Talk. Hi, Kirsten. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Zoe, how would you describe yourself? Well, you always start with the hard questions, don't you? 
<laughs> I didn't start with purpose of life. <laughs> um, well, obviously, with my coach hat on, and I know full well that we all have multiple identities. So, you know, um, um, what am I? I'm a, I'm a human, a woman, a mum. Uh, I have been a daughter. I guess I still am a daughter. Um, I'm an auntie. Uh, I'm a cousin. Um, I am an activist. I'm a coach. I'm a business owner. Um, I'm a politically active citizen. Um, what else am I? I, I? I aspire to be a truth speaker, whatever that means. A truth speaker. Okay, that's a that's a great topic for today. Okay, um, Zoe. Um, so maybe, I mean, let's get some elephants out of the room or into the room, actually, <laughs> first of all, because we before we can let them out of the room. So, um, extinction rebellion. Not everybody knows what that is. You're also, I think, active for Insulate Britain. Um, so, maybe tell us a little bit about your activism, what you do there, and why you do it. Okay, um, so uh, in, uh, Extinction Rebellion, for those people who aren't aware, um, is a social movement. It's uh, We are a um, grassroots civil dis disobedience movement using non-violent direct action, um, and we exist to demand and push our government. I say our government because uh, Extinction Rebellion was created or formed in the United, in the United Kingdom, um, but does exist in well over 70 countries now. It's kind of pretty much global movement. Um, but here in the UK, we uh, our demands are uh, that the government and associated institutions tell the truth about the climate and ecological emergency that we're in, as in the real truth. Um, and that they act now and uh, get to near zero carbon emissions by 2025 and halt biodiversity harm, etc. Um, and the third demand is for a legally binding citizens' assembly to steer uh, the government through what needs to happen and how it needs to happen uh, so the citizens are fully and properly transparently engaged and we have an upgraded democracy. So, so that's kind of what we're about, and we um, aim to achieve our demands through, as I said, peaceful, non-violent direct action. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not a campaign, we're a movement, and uh, explicitly are in um, uh, in uh, rebellion against our government, which sounds like a really weird thing to say. I, I, every time I say it, it, it sounds kind of jarring with kind of everyday life because everyday life you go around your business and you don't talk about being in rebellion against your government but um because our government not just our government many many if not pretty much every government um is failing in their primary duty to keep their citizens safe from uh the existential crisis that we face then it's kind of our duty as citizens to step up and um, be an active rebellion against that. And I think um, being a social activist um, is, is, is maybe one kind of label to put on it. But I think in your case or in the case of Extinction Rebellion, I think that there was almost like a perception that XR for short is, is known for its very um, visual, um, also 
activities that disturb the public process, let's say, I mean, blocking the M25, the lifeline of London, for example, or, you know, um, protesting against uh, HSBC, uh, smashing some windows. That is that is something that brings you into the news, into BBC, into Sky News. And it's a lot about the, the lot of the, the question is, why are you doing this? Why are you so forceful? Why are you not, why are you not just protesting? Um, what's your what's your answer mm. to this? Okay. I mean, like protesting like others, like marching the streets, that kind of thing. Yeah, because those things don't work. Okay. <laughs> I Short mean, they, answer. <laughs> they, they don't. That's the and just to differentiate for, for, for people listening, um, is in terms of booking the M25 and the, the circular motorway around London, and um, that that's been an act, actions that have been taken by Insulate Britain, which is separate from Extinction Rebellion. Some of the same people are involved, but it is actually a separate movement. So um just, just to discern that. But um the yeah, I mean, do, doing stuff like all the all the polite, non-disruptive stuff rarely achieves anything. Like you know, for really specific, specific, precise, limited changes, petitions, marches, um, traditional campaigning can achieve some stuff in some cases. But what we're talking about here is a whole-scale transformation. You know, um, and it, in there's there is so many people and so many organizations from from the UN to Prince Charles to um people at the heart of the World Economic Forum through to activists and and, and all sorts of people in between and, and commentators saying like how much whether you call it system change or transformation or complete shift in consciousness or you know there are so many different ways of, of explaining or talking about the, the scale of this shift that we need and it, it's way beyond um it's way beyond anything one can petition for or march for and let's face it you know lots of big marches have happened before like um in this country we see quite some years ago we had the, a huge march with multiple millions of people I think it, I think it might have been a couple of million I'm not sure exactly off the top of my head right now but against the marching against the war in Iraq and that made no difference um whereas uh, unfortunately the situation is such that our democratic processes and structures are pretty broken um and you know I've, I'm 51 and I've made sure that I voted in every election since I was 18 because you know that's the right thing to do and I knew from my being a young girl that women had you know the suffragettes had done an awful lot to fight for the vote so we should love well vote um, and use that right um, but there's never been an, there's never been anywhere there's never been a box to tick or a box to cross on the ballot box that has that has said you know stop destroying the biosphere or or let's or live within planet if you want to live within planetary boundaries and you know have a long-term future on earth tick this box that's never been an option right. that you know every, every box has been that one could tick pretty much with possibly the exception of the green party to a degree but then the green party have no power within the structures and an ability to get any power within the structures in this country or many countries um there's no way of actually voting for the level of systemic change that we've needed. So, alas, with a very heavy heart, ordinary people have to cause disruption to get attention, to get the media, to then put pressure on the government. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And I think that the first part of the line of argumentation is uh, we are uh, living in a way, especially the global north, which is, I think, the term that you use, or not you, but that also researchers uh, uh, use for the, let's say, first world countries, industrialized countries, large GDPs that consume a lot of natural resources, that emit a lot of CO2 and other gases that pollute the atmosphere, and at the end kind of deplete the resources that are available for the entirety of mankind, especially in, in the global south as well. I think let's not even you know, discuss that. That's a tick in the box. At least for me, that's that's totally clear. The question is how to what to do about it, right? And mm -hmm. um, I think what I what I hear you say is our democratic system is too much a choose choice between A or B, whilst A or B is both not good enough for the level of change that we have to do. So it's a bit more, is it more towards basis democracy? So like referendums, asking the people, having them having them getting them more of a say in the global policy making process? Yeah, so I, I'm not quite sure whether you're asking me about that, that asking me that in the context of Extinction Rebellion or generally, but I'm going to answer both if that's all right. That's right. Um, so, <laughs> um, so Extinction Rebellion's third demand uh, is about citizens' assemblies um, and the, the demand for there to be a legally binding citizens' assembly. Now, uh, um, citizens' assemblies are getting a little bit more um, awareness publicly, but there's still pretty low level of awareness, I think, about what they are and why they are and, and so on. Um, but it, essentially, the, the idea of citizens' assemblies, I, I believe, goes back to the kind of Greek times and uh, Athenian democracy and so forth, uh, the model, although... Um, uh, I'm not going to go into that because I don't know a lot about it back then, but it's not a totally new idea. But then the um, modern sort of versions of citizens' assemblies are, have been used across various countries in the world. And a well-known example in this country is the, um, in Ireland around the abortion, the abortion debate where it was too hot to handle for politicians. So they created a citizens' assembly and in citizens' Well, citizens, there's, there's several core aspects of a citizens' assembly. Um, one is that it's, um, in an ideal world, it should be constituted so that it's independent, independent of the body that created it. Um, so it's, you know, it's got real kind of um, transparency in that sense. And by definition, citizens' assemblies are created by a process called sortition, which is like a lottery, like the same sort of process that's used to select juries for people for jury service in, in, in this country and I'm sure elsewhere. So it is a random stratified sample. So every citizens assembly, if it's say 200 people or whatever, it's automatically 50% women, it's the right representative proportion of different ethnic, ethnic groups, of um, different wealth strata in society, for example, and, and whatever other characteristics are important. Um, and so you've got uh, a genuinely representative group of people and you have a genuinely deliberative process. Um, I, 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 I'm, so it's not the kind of oppositional shouting matches that happen in Westminster and, you know, in the Houses of Parliament, it's just in House Commons, you just get... Um, this awful oppositional shouting across the divide and this bluster and the blah, blah, blah. And the, um, yeah, you don't, you don't, you're going to have more genuine adult adult conversation um, and people are, you, know, you can have training because um, many people aren't, you know, aren't used to 
um, deliberative processes and, and at some kind of training about 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 that and have you know really good facilitation to help people talk um, and really build build respect and build shared shared knowledge um, and uh, hear from a genuinely wide range of sources of evidence from you know from the scientific experts through to indigenous peoples with lived experience and so on and and deliberate on that full complexity and come out with um, considered responses and considered proposals that um, the evidence shows, um, again, citizens' assemblies, I believe that um, citizens, when going through that kind of process, um, will often come out with much more courageous and um, progressive proposals than the politicians will. You know, because the politicians are well. If I even if I say it charitably, they're in that space of you know I know I know the right thing to do, but I don't know how to get elected doing it, or that you know that expression. And that's me being charitable about a lot of them, particularly in this country. But um, um, uh, you know, the people, we the people, um, can think long term, and and if given the right, you know, the full scope of information, we generally want. You know, I do believe people want to do the right thing when people when people are, I don't mean the right, as in there is a single right thing, but I mean when presented with a really good range of evidence from different sources and having opportunities to deliberate with people with different views, um, people can come out with some really, really sound um, and uh, more ambitious proposals than governments will do. Um, and so so that so I think I'm saying that from a perspective that's that's the kind of um some of the information behind um the uh, third demand for extinction rebellion. What's what's also really important is that you know um uh, our parliamentary timetables and things work on you know electoral timetables rather they work on on you know four or five years, don't they? And governments might might think a couple of years ahead and then they're soon in election mode. So they just so short term. Uh-huh. But you know we we need to think generations ahead, don't we? You know we talk about in some indigenous peoples imagine thinking thinking seven generations ahead and, and just just thinking on a whole different timescale. And we need to think about being good ancestors, and we need to understand planetary processes and not short term politics. So um, we need to be thinking, you know, twenty, thirty, hundred years ahead, um, and making making decisions in that in that vein. And citizens can do that. Politicians struggle to. Right, because the element of power, re-election, staying in power comes into, into the way. Now, a country that is known for more basic democracy is Switzerland in, in Europe. They have all kinds of referendums each year. I, I think it's probably, you know, like 10 or 20, um, some major ones, some smaller ones. Now, they are not necessarily known to be super ecological as a country, meaning basis democracy as such doesn't necessarily translate into the right development and also not into quicker developments, maybe. So I think a bit of education along the way is probably important, which I think is the role of the General Assemblies, that they have presented all the, that they get presented all the relevant research, the facts, also maybe the contradicting facts. It's oftentimes not so easy, right? Um, is, is that the thought? Um, yes, I and mean, I think, and if if only humanity was simple and straightforward, yeah, it's like we're, we're, it's, we're, 
but the truth is very messy, isn't it? And making progress is a messy thing. And as much as my inner child might like it to be linear and simplistic, it just isn't, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but so the the context for the de- deliberation is super important, isn't it? In and influential, everything from the bigger political zeitgeist to the kind of ecological context to the um media all of the things that influence those things so the the nature of the media and obviously the social media and, and the algorithms on facebook and all of the myriad of different things um are impact on on uh, how people will vote and those kind of things i mean i think um Referendums are one thing; they're quite a blunt instrument, aren't they? As we as we've seen in this country in mm-hmm. recent years, they're a pretty blunt instrument. Whereas the citizens' assembly is is much more nuanced and deliberative, and actually allows. Obviously, at the end of the day, recommendations need to be voted on, but you know, you, you, you do that with a genuine deliberation, mm. and um, uh, one can can sort of. Uh, I think I just want to highlight here that the something that I feel. Um, uh, very drawn to and um, uh, enthusiastic about at the moment is the global assembly that's happening um, as we speak. They're in, the, in about halfway through, um, and it's one. I find it's one of those things where you start talking about it and you think, "Yeah, wow, why haven't we ever had this before?" Mm-hmm. So that you know, the idea of actually having a, a properly representative group of citizens across the earth to deliberate on the most important issues of our time. You know, it, it's kind of, you think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Why haven't we got that built into our global governance systems? But mm. we haven't. And um, the Global Assembly that has been prototyped this year with 100 people chosen by by um, sorticians from 100 points on Earth, um, which is pretty mind-blowing when you think about it, mm-hmm. um, and um, there is a lady from Germany in there. I've uh, I've uh, seen her speak on one of the events. They they had a presentation at the first day of COP, um, which was the first time they've done a sort of interim presentation. And they had a few people from the the, the assembly speaking themselves. Um, a gentleman from Thailand, a lady from India, a guy from the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and um, a lady from um, Germany. Uh, oh, a lady from China as well. Um, and that was amazing. It's it's kind of um, it brings out goose pimples if that makes sense. <laughs> Translates well. It's a good one. Spine tingling moment. Actually, yeah. hearing, listening to a a, a, a cross section of ordinary people, like real ordinary people, who, um, from those countries speaking about their experience of working in this way with. Um, people that they would have had no opportunity to ever interact with before um and it's really humbling i find it really humbling and genuinely inspiring that the global assembly and the possibility of actually hearing the voice of humanity for the first time ever the real voice of humanity not davos or you know billionaires who i'm utterly sick of hearing of but the real voice of humanity is just it's beautiful um, and I just hope uh, it's prototyped this year with 100 people. Um, it's due to come out with its um, re- full report in March next year. And the, the question it's been deliberating on, because we know as coaches that our 
you know, the human mind works best in the presence of a question, doesn't it? And that's how citizens' assemblies work. They have a, they have a question to deliberate on. Um, and the question that the Global Assembly has been deliberating on is um, how can humanity um, address the climate and ecological crisis uh, fairly and effectively? It's a very, you know, simple, clear, not simple, clear question. It's a big that's, question, yeah, but it's yeah. a clearly worded, very clearly worded question. So, um, and so it's the, yeah. is that uh, um, this this global assembly is that fr- uh, organized by Extinction Rebellion or by oh, the United Nations? Good question. Good, super, super question. I should have been clear about that. Thank you, Carsten. Um, so, no, I've, I've segued from citizens' assemblies in the UK and exercise demands to the global assembly, and I should have been clear about that. So, no, that it's completely separate. So, um, I guess a couple of things to say there. One is that yeah, it's kind of. I think that um, Extinction Rebellion and the founders of Extinction Rebellion were ahead of their time, in ahead of well, in lots of ways, but ahead of certainly ahead of their time in terms of um, recognizing the need for and calling for deliberative democracy, um, because of this the scale and level of the existential threats we face are are beyond party politics, way, way, way beyond party politics. Uh-huh. So, but and this global assembly is is completely separate from both the UN and anything like Extinction Rebellion or any activist group. So it's been um it's been set up and um funded in a sort of completely independent, transparent way. Um, it's not funded by governments or corporations. It's funded by um, sort of independent funders and and personal donations, etc. And those donors have no no way of influencing the content of the assembly at all. It's completely at a distance, if you like. So the fund, the, it's not like political lobbying, which is paying for decisions right, left, and centre in this country and elsewhere. Uh-huh. We don't. We it's, it's it is genuinely um, not lobbyable, um, which is super important. And um, it's also not. Um, It's got very transparent governance, which you can look up on their website, which is just globalassembly.org. Um, and there it has um, sort of governance bodies which are really transparent and diverse and um, are, again are sort of not not coming from a particular lobby or a particular NGO. So um, yeah, it, it, it's separate and independent and transparent and yet supported by you know, really beginning to be supported by a wide range of people from um, uh, from people at the UN. So Antonio Guterres, Nigel mm-hmm. Topping, Alok Sharma are all speaking out saying they think the Global Assembly is a good thing, wow. um, which is, you know, really positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm involved in a, uh, in a group called Leaders for Global Assemblies, which is... Um, a diverse group of leaders from across a whole range of sectors, business, academia, media, fashion, finance, um, and more, a healthcare and beyond, um, who are saying, actually, this system isn't working. You know, that the system, the idea that the tiny minority of people who have control over the current systems might be able to steer us out of this is 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 wrong and it's unjust and it's unfair and if we're going to steer ourselves into the next phase of you know humanity next phase of human history we need to do that in a just fair and transparent way and that global citizens assemblies uh 
like the Global Assembly being prototyped right now are a really key part of that and they need to be a part of global governance. So um, I'm really proud to be one of an increasing number of leaders calling for that shift. Um, okay, understood. Yeah. yeah. So we'll link that in the show notes for people to, to look up because I think it's not very well known here. Uh, I'm just learning this from you and I think it makes tons of sense um, because I was I was always asking myself, okay, I get this. this, there's radical change needed and I feel it too. But the question is, how do you do this whilst, you know, living up to humanity and, and um, you know, equal rights and social justice? Um, I mean, a, a very effective way would be an eco-dictatorship, right? To say, we change the system, throw it all over, put a good dictator on top and we save the planet. Probably mm. effective, but then uh, that's not what we, you know, it's probably not very I don't know. It's it's not the right. It doesn't sound like the right thing to do. It just sounds no, wrong. no. And and um, we may not want to go in this direction, but there's there's obviously a, um, rightly a lot of concerns about ecofascism, right? And mm. you know, I, I saw a really shocking. Well, it shocked it shocked me, even though I know about it. But it was the depth of it was just shocking. I saw an article recently about um, the May the I think it was the G20 uh, states G20 countries and how much they how much more they spend on border security and border control than they do on climate action and it's shocking um like Canada I think was spending 15 times more on border security and border control than it is on climate action and even here in the UK where we claim we're a world leader we're spending twice as much on our border security etc than we are on climate action And, you know, it's like the um, one of the um, expressions from the suffragettes is deeds, not words. You know, so look, look at what people and governments and corporations are actually doing, um, not what they're saying. So they're, you know. You mentioned suffragettes. Um, not everybody knows who the suffragettes were. Maybe mm -hmm. you can say two sentences about them. Yeah, okay. Um, so um, the suffragettes, Projects were a group of women who used different direct action strategies to play a key role in getting women the vote in this country um, over 100 years ago. Mm, okay, yeah. and also I think in other countries, right? Um, I, I'm sure. Yeah, there were other movements. Yeah. Yes, there were other movements in other countries. Apologies. Um, yeah, there were other movements in other countries. But um, I guess I, I know a bit more about the, the UK. So apologies for being being not globally informed on that. But yeah, and obviously there have been. It's a French. It's a French name. So hence I was yeah. guessing it is probably French as well. There obviously there've been suffrage movements on, and in in many parts of the world. But um, yeah, I was thinking particularly about the the. UK suffragettes and how um, they did a whole range of, of things, including breaking windows and to uh, bring attention to what they were demanding. And so, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the key point is, and we have, you have been kind, kindly uh, speaking at one of our conferences the, the other week, uh, where you know a lot, lot of the panelists, a lot of the spectators, not spectators, the people in the audience, they left, I think, Uh, shaken um, and sometimes mildly depressed, I would say. Um, and and the, the reason being that part of, if you put one and one together, the, this relatively simple outcome of that thinking process is that we cannot sustain our standard of living if we are going to sustain 
mankind, you know, in a long run. I mean, at the end of the day, it boils down to that. And we all know that it's super simple to say, okay, I, I drop, I don't use this plastic bag, but standard of living, I mean, that's a different thing, right? That, that is, that is really getting to the core of people where people also tend to get defensive. And I think, you speaking about that, uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion, Fridays for Future, speaking about that, shouting about that sometimes, uh, for people kind of creates a defense mechanism of saying, yes, I like you. I, I think you're right. It's it's admirable. Don't smash glass. And on the other hand, I also don't want to use lose my standard of living. What's your thinking on that? Wow, it's a brilliant question. I've probably got about an hour's worth of response. <laughs> I try and be succinct. Um, and I guess I, my inner voice is speaking to me throughout this conversation, Carsten, and, and, you know, um, partly it's saying, you know, who the hell are you to say any of this? Sorry. I mean, I, I'm literally, I'm just one person, just one person muddling my way through trying to do mm-hmm. my best. So in that context, um, I think it's pro- there's probably at least three things to say. There's something about identity Something about there's about fear. There's something about there's lots of things. So I think, uh, well, I'll just I'll just say what I went uh, some of some of what I went through, and and I'm sure I'm still going through because I don't think it necessarily ever ends. Is sort of you know getting to lay going through layers of working through different layers of denial and collusion with oneself and the system that we're in and what we've been told and socialized in for most, if not all, of our lives. And working through that and coming to the painful conclusion that much of it is a total lie, mm-hmm. you know, that this sort of fabrication, it's almost, I'm guessing, I don't know if you've ever seen The Truman Show, the film. Yeah, and I hope hopefully some people listening have seen The Truman Show. The guy's kind of literally from baby, is brought up in the film set, basically, and then he breaks through to the real world. And, you know, on one level, I think, I think we've all, well, all those of us in the global north in um, we've been brought up in this kind of, cons- brought up to be consumers, not citizens. So if we've been brought up to be consumers, which let's face it, face it is pretty much all of us, um, other, other than obviously um, indigenous peoples, for example, who, who have more connection to reality, i.e. the earth, um, consumer, the, the consumer, society and the messages we're told and is we'll be happier if we have this stuff we'll be happier if we buy this stuff we'll be happy if we have more we'll be happy if we be more well this aspirational lifestyle um so much of it is just total and utter nonsense isn't it it doesn't make us it doesn't make us happy um we can see that writ large through society you know we have absolute um we have a a pandemic of mental health issues don't we we have a pandemic of poor mental health particularly among so many people and particularly young people um, and uh, teenage girls, for example, we just horrific mental health problems. Um, and because you know, we're societally selling them one stuff, selling them a complete lie. And, and you know, this stuff doesn't make us happy. It doesn't, it, and it doesn't even keep us safe in the long term. Um, and you know what, uh, for me, it's about focusing on human needs. And I think maybe for some people, and again, I'm hesitating to say this because everyone's experience was different and for many it was awful, but for in some ways for some people, some of the pandemic lockdowns reminded us of what was important, uh-huh. you know, that, that 
Um, Connection, friends, absolutely, nature. Be, yeah, exactly. Being with people we love, having having access to, to food when we needed it, having shelter, having... Um, Toilet paper, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... It, at, actual essentials um as opposed to the non-essentials that we've been told we need which uh, feed the corporations and the profit motive and um so much of what we're told that we need you know if we think back depending on how old listeners are you think back to when you when you were little or you know i grew up in the 70s early 80s we didn't have loads of this stuff and and actually we were fine um, so I'm not, and I'm not. People say, "Oh, you're trying to put us back into caves." That couldn't be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth because actually, you know, if, um, I'm a pretty kind of data-based or evidence-based person, and um, there's um, uh, when you actually look at indicators. I'm trying to remember the name of the indicator. It will come to me in a minute. Um, there is um, uh, good evidence that when you look at a Full, fully sort of rounded indicator of human well-being and you compare that with GDP, actually our, our actual human well-being has been flatlining since the kind of 60s, 70s. Um, and as GDP has gone up, you know, gross domestic product. And, and uh, I would really, really super encourage people to read um, a book called Less is More by Jason Hickel. Um, who is a, a, a wonderful um, academic and writer in um, the field of um, uh, ecological anthropology and economics and degrowth. And, um, and actually, you know, the vast majority of uh, GDP growth goes to the top 1% in society. Uh-huh. Uh, so all, all it's really done is exacerbate inequality. So yes, some, there's been a bit of trickle down, but the trickle down theory is just... Is, is nonsense, you know. It's updated, I think. I think yeah. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's complete nonsense. So I'm um, trying to come back to your, I guess, come back to your question, but I think um, I, so I am a, a strong um, believer in in um, the need for managed degrowth, um, which isn't, doesn't mean recession. It means a, a complete change in how we kind of configure our society. So and circular I, economy, for example, like yeah. supply chains that are circular, yeah, yeah. So, so, so circularity is obviously super, super, super important, as is, for example, things like moving to a four day week or maybe mm-hmm. even less, you know, because we hear, we hear demands. I don't know if you have it, have it across Europe. I'm guessing there's a case. I mean, we certainly hear it in this country. Like, you know, we need to be more productive. Workers need to be more productive. But actually, I, I've seen some really interesting research that says in terms of you know, energy and material throughput, which brings us back to reality, you know, the real world of planetary boundaries, what we can actually afford planetarily is about a two and a half day week, <laughs> which we need to slow down. We okay. just need to slow down um, mm-hmm. a lot of things. And um, and managed degrowth is about, um, it's about growing certain parts of our society and economy. So growing care, growing education, um, growing um, uh agroforestry, you know, and organic growing and growing real of community resilience and that um and and degrowing parts of the economy that are just non-essential. You know, so fast fashion would be a great example. You know, we know that tons and tons of clothing is dumped on um 
uh, either waste dumps or dumps in um, developing countries uh, or global south countries daily. So we've got more clothes than we could ever need. And I'm sure most of the listeners could like, you know, go to their wardrobe right now and think, yeah, I don't wear 90% of that every day. So I probably don't ever need any clothes again. And I mean, that's what I did that nearly three years ago that I really do not need to buy any new items of clothing anymore. So I haven't. And it's, you know, um, we, we just, stuff doesn't make us happy. And I think at our hearts, we know that. Um, and uh, there is another world that is entirely possible that has limitless compassion, limitless love, limitless com- collaboration, limitless care, limitless kindness. You know, the things that actually make life really, really joyful and wonderful. Mm-hmm. And those things are not limited. And we can have unlimited growth of all of that care, mm-hmm. compassion, kindness, joy, fun, love humor there is no limit on those things but there are planetary boundaries on the reality that we have to live within and we've burst most of our planetary boundaries so if people are not familiar with the notion of planetary boundaries you know they are the physics chemistry biology and ecology of the planet that tells us very clearly where the limits are because we only have one earth and we're consuming nearly two earths worth a year of resources at the moment and that's set to increase because economic growth which our people in power are so wedded to you know they're desperate to get three percent year-on-year economic growth if not more but that means a doubling of the size of the economy in 20 years every 20 years but we don't double the earth so it's impossible it's it's it's, school children know this Mm -hmm. is impossible but somehow when we go into the working world we accept that's what we're supposed to do and we're supposed to feed the economy and like we exist to feed the economy no the economy is a subset of humanity and ecology, and it should be looking after us. So we need to redesign it. Uh-huh. It needs to be rewired. The whole economic system needs to be rewired um, so that it actually looks after uh, you know, all of us, not just the 1% or the 10%, but all of us within planetary boundaries in a fair and just way. And there's there are lots of thought leaders and examples of, of how we can move towards that, you know, from um, donut economics to degrowth steady state economy models, bioregional economy models. We're not short of the models, you know, we're short of the political will and the power shifts, um, which kind of brings us full circle back to direct action and activism and citizens assemblies and people power and all of these things. But I, I, I think that I totally understand that reaction that you've described, Carsten, because um, I think I feel there's almost like a grieving process, you know, like a transition curve. I'm sure everyone at coaches are really familiar with all this stuff. And so we we ought to be in a good position to support ourselves and other people through this because there's a transition curve to go through to to get to the point of accepting that we've been fed a load of lies and that this life that we've been aspiring to perhaps or maybe even still aspire to may really not be the right thing and may not serve ourselves and serve our children and and in the long term not even the long term in the here and now is going to lead to collapse so coming to accept that can be quite painful and i think for the more that people's sense of identity is hooked on their work self their professional self their wealth self their material self it's even more painful um and the you know with it uh, uh, I, I 
totally believe that another world is possible and there's a world in which we can have you know universal basic services universal basic income shorter working weeks um freeing ourselves up to collaborate to work on community resilience which we're blooming well going to need because so much negative um you know climate impacts are now locked in and inevitable so we need to face that with love and compassion and open eyes and um you know get on and work together to collaborate internationally nationally and at local level to support our resilience in communities to there's a few there's that. a few dozen questions that are I, I know so <laughs> but <laughs> actually actually i think we circled that that area uh, that that topic which is huge and vast and challenging uh, and i would like to go a little bit into your biography just to understand how did zoe cohen became the activist the coach uh, you know the the mother the family person um that actually is so convinced of the case that she is you know being taken by the police being in courts um i'm not sure about being in prison but at least uh, you know very very fundamental things where normal people uh, would say wow you know that that's Uh, that's a bit too much for me um and let's maybe paint that picture how is that how did that develop and let's see um, you know what we can make of that so mm -hmm. Zoe, talking about your family how would you describe the the family that you were born into that you were raised what was what were values that were important what were things that kind of made an impact on your life Wow. <laughs> That's a big question. Easy question. <laughs> oh, heck. Um, well, lots of things. Um, I gen well, I genuinely think I'm a very ordinary person. I guess um, rel you know, relative to the global, to global south or global majority, I was you know, obviously privileged to grow up and be brought up in the UK. That said, I didn't have a particularly privileged upbringing. Um, 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 we had a lot of money problems in my family when I was growing up. Um, uh, and I guess there's sort of some key things that shaped um, all sorts of things. I mean, this. Oh, hello, dog. It's nice to have yeah. a non. We have a non human. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I, that's an on cue, actually, because I've um, right from being very little, I um, very young. I think I think all very young children have a strong connection to the natural world. And the non-human world, you, know, you see only see little ones playing with animals, playing with pets, and you just they don't really see or feel a boundary between humans and non-humans when they're little. And, and um, I've never really changed from that. I really, 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 really dislike anthropocentrism. You know, we're just a species. We're so arrogant, and I, it freaks me out the level of arrogance. You know, when scientists discover that another species has got some characteristic that we've got, they're like shocked about it. Like, what the hell? how dare we be so arrogant that we think other species haven't got forms of communication or consciousness that are mm. similar, different or better than ours. How ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Just because they haven't got iPhones doesn't mean they're not beautiful, <laughs> intelligent, incredible creatures. How ridiculous. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so lots of things, I guess. I mean, uh, there's a myriad of chaos theory that impacts on us, isn't there? So being born in 1970 um, in the Northwest of England in, pretty ordinary street really um and my uh dad was um his parents were polish and romanian 
Jewish immigrants who came across between the First and Second World War. Um, and my mum's family was a mix of French and Welsh and English. And so there's all sorts of mix in this. So I think, I think being a, a, a hybrid mix of um, all sorts of uh, European background um, and um, Jewish and and uh, uh, non-Jewish kind of bit, mi- whole mix of hybrid. I think that you know that had obviously all sorts of um, impacts on me. Um, and um, my in terms of values, um, I guess a mix of my my dad was pretty politically aware and. I wouldn't say he was massively politically active, but he was pretty politically aware um, and was very, um, was pretty academic and he read a lot and my, both my parents read a lot and um, were, were both well-read. Um, and um, yeah, so he, you know, talk about, about politics and was pretty sort of politically engaged in his own mind and would have debates at home and that kind of thing. And, and, and they both had really strong values. Um, and uh, my mum had a huge love of nature, which uh, obviously I picked up on as well. Um, and I guess there's also what you pick up from your wider surroundings societally and in the zeitgeist of the time. And there's also what you bring as your innate self, you know, to a mix of that. So um, I love of have a love of absolute love of plants and animals some sort of some sort of in I don't know if it was innate who knows but some sort of inner appreciation of ecology and the web of life from a really young age um uh quite a strong sense from uh, around justice and um um uh, feminism um women's rights girls rights um, the importance of those uh, passion around. Uh, I was I've always been passionate about equality and inequ- and and uh, wanting to call out inequality from a, a young age. Um, so yeah, lots 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 of different um, things which just kind of stayed with me, I guess. And so much of that, some of that from my mum and dad, some of it from the broader zeitgeist, and I guess some impacts from just what whatever the kernel of me is, whoever knows what that is. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then you moved on and you applied at Oxford and you got accepted, which is, I mean, one of the best universities in the United Kingdom. Um, and you studied human science, not ecology, not biology. Why that? Yeah, well, I mean, I was super lucky to um, uh get the the last year full grants to university um and not after that uh the, the loan system came in and then of course latterly in recent years the the needing to having to pay tuition fees and all of that was so I, I got the the last the very last year of the full grant system to be able to not just have tuition fees paid but have a have a a, a grant because otherwise i'm not sure i wouldn't have been able to go to university because we wouldn't have had the money to do that mm-hmm. so i was in, i'm conscious of being incredibly lucky of um with that um, and yeah, my um, again, chaos theory does so many things, doesn't it? They're just the sort of ripples of chaotic, complex systems. Um, the 
actually most of my university choices were to do um, ecology or environmental biology because that was kind of where my heart very much was. I did biology, chemistry and geography at A-level um, in senior school and um, and then through some through some like literally kind of semi-random things happening, I ended up applying for and becoming aware of human sciences as a course. And um, it did really appeal to me because it, it was so multidisciplinary. And I've always had a sort of brain that doesn't do silos. I don't, you know, I like depth, but I like depth across a lot, <laughs> a lot of areas. And I, I think I just have a something that's a bit innately systemic in my way of thinking. And um, this, yeah, it, it, I don't like silos. I don't like um, narrow thinking. I like breadth and interconnectivity and um, seeing the whole and seeing systemic connection and connecting lots of stories up and lots of dots up so um uh, and human sciences was you know um hugely broad in terms of what it covered everything from demography um genetics animal behavior mm -hmm. epidemiology statistics hu um, human ecology anthropology um uh, animal behavior you know, it was really really broad um and such a great um grounding I guess sort of yeah such a great grounding to have a sense of um how the world really works uh -huh. really um I think it, some enlightened people created it as a degree in Oxford back in I think the 70s um probably the, possibly the late 60s or if not early 70s as a sort of answer to PPE, politics, philosophy, economics, which is kind of the classic degree that so many people do in Oxford and other similar universities and then go on to be in powerful positions in politics and economics and business. And, you know, like, uh, which is just feeding people the traditional economic model. And so human sciences was kind of the um, the response of like everything else except PPE. It's like, <laughs> let's actually understand humans um, culturally, genetically behaviorally ecologically how you know um let's understand humanity in a much broader sense um so yeah i hope that answers your question yeah it does and many other questions too <laughs> <laughs> sorry that's how much no that's works. fine and and then <laughs> and and then you moved on there were some more studies but then you spent a large time of your working life in the nhs which is the national health service and i Uh, if I understood correctly, there was several stints, but you were, is it fair to say that you were running um, kind of, um, I'm not sure if hospital is the right term, but I think there were some mental health institutions. You were not on the kind of caring side or caregiving side or on the doctor side, but you were kind of on the management and administration side of things. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah. So I, out, out of the university, I... Um applied for and got on got a place on the graduate training scheme for the, for the NHS so the uh, NHS management training scheme um, of which there was thousands of applications and 50 places it was really competitive and it's still I think it's still going and I think it's still really competitive um, and because uh, I knew I knew I didn't want to work in um, the traditional corporate sector it's not what I wanted to do I didn't want to help companies make more profit and stuff I knew back then I, you know but I didn't want to do that. Um, um, 
and I cared about inequality and public health and uh, so yeah so I, I wanted to, to to go into the in, into the NHS um, and uh, yeah I had to say a non-clinical background so I wasn't a nurse or a doctor or anything like that obviously um, and was I, I did had did work for some time in um, hospital organisations, but most of the time I was more drawn to because of the way my brain works and takes the sort of big picture interconnected long-term perspectives, much more drawn to kind of the strategy and service commissioning and public health, where it's about, you know, tackling inequalities, it's about prevention, it's about thinking long-term and thinking more systemically rather than um, treating the patients in front of you not that that isn't super important and it is you know it is super important and I dearly love the health service and the NHS is an incredible institution in this country but at the same time I remember learning um uh, I don't know you might have this too I'm sure we all have this guys but there's kind of key learnings or facts or or things that strike us and and we remember years and years on so I remember learning many years ago probably 30 years ago um that uh, at any one point in time, only one percent of the population are having connect having contact with hospital services. But something like seventy percent of people in any one year will have con- contact with primary care. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to influence people's health status um, and well being, you're going to do that through primary and community services. You're not going to do that through hospitals, which are really you know dealing with people downstream when the problems have already happened. And you know this has been known for decades and decades and decades. It's been known for a long, long, long time, and we're still battling with it because the systems are set up to not prevent anything. You know, it's a which brings us back to the bigger issues. Brings us back to the bigger issues of the fact that the whole political economy drives illness and harm and death. You know, literally. So we have, you know, the pharma, pharmaceutical companies and pharma complex and the agricultural sector is, you know, uh, destroying our ecology by habitat destruction, chemical use, antibiotic use to feed us low grade shit food, excuse my language, that makes us ill that the pharma companies then make profit for our pension funds out of making us ill because they then develop drugs for the fact that we've got diabetes, asthma, blah, 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 all the, all the you know, heart disease, high blood pressure, all the things that we've got because we've been fed the rubbish food by the system in order just to carry on. And it's all just like, you know, and but that makes money for um, making the rich richer and for pumping the pension funds to, it's just bonkers. It's a whole, it's bonkers, isn't it? It's totally bonkers. Um, and, uh, the more one zooms out, the more bonkers one can see it is. The whole, you know, agricultural system, food system, the finance system, the military complex, all of it is bonkers. Your biography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's so bonkers. There were 15 years in, in NHS where you just had these different roles, where you also came to realization, you know, that system is bonkers partially or is part of a bigger <laughs> system that is bonkers um and then you made a, a shift um many coaches at one point make a shift in their career um can you walk us through what led you to this shift to say now i leave that relative safety maybe the prestige and i do my own thing and i develop my own coaching practice yeah um 
So I, I guess uh, I noticed I, as the years went on, as I get, I, I, I got to, uh, into a director position at ridiculously young age. I was like 27. I was one of the youngest directors in the country at the time. Bonkers, again, a bonkers thing to happen, really. Um, I wasn't really prepared for it in many ways, um, but enjoyed it and got a lot out of it in other ways. But um, um, lots of things happened. So I guess that um, I naturally had an affinity for coaching and mentoring people before I really knew what those things were. And, you know, even as I, on the graduate scheme in the NHS, um, I was supporting and mentoring people that I came into contact with to apply for it. You know, like, (laughs) um, I helped a guy who was um, in a sort of kind of dead end role, but had loads of potential to apply as a mature, mature student and he got on and then, you know, had whatever career and things like that. So I was doing that, that those sorts of things at a really young age. And um, so I guess I just kind of discovered that it's who I am and it's just, you know, it's just expression of who I am really. Um, and um, as time went on, my passion for like spotting talent and ability and helping people make the most of that and whatever that means kind of that kind of outgrew my passion for the NHS not 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 for the NHS really but my passion to be in those roles um particularly when um I think I'd been through in 15 years I'd been through five major reorganizations and um, it's a bit like, you know, I don't know, when you keep bending something, an object, it gets brittle and then you can bend it only so many times and then it snaps. And I think, I you know, just and then there was another big reorganisation happening from central government, which I really didn't agree with. And I thought I didn't agree with this reorganisation. I didn't think it was going in the right direction. I didn't feel in myself that I had the had the will to want to march myself and and my people up that hill. <laughs> and part of the organization and do that willingly and le- and speak you know speak for it and and do that authentic authentically and at the same time there was the banking crisis um um which i was sort of thinking okay this is um uh, this means that 18 months plus time austerity is going to hit because you know that's what's going to happen isn't it and it was like a slow moving wall of water like a slow moving tsunami and um I was like, hang on a minute, guys, we need to we need to start talking about this because the NHS and the public service is going to get hit by this. But I don't think anyone, we don't like to talk about difficult stuff, do we? It's like that's why we're partly where we are with the climate ecological crisis, because we don't like to acknowledge difficulty and talk about it. So anyway, all of the above was going on. And um, uh, I think just prior to that, I had done my first formal coach training which had kind of really opened my eyes and connected myself with myself of like okay this is kind of who I am and this is kind of what I do I just want to do more of it um um and uh I yeah so I decided um ultimately to leave a full-time permanent role um and just uh having started my practice really part-time um decided to just to go for it 
Um, and so I, yeah, well, I gave my notice in and walked away from a full-time permanent role. And some people thought I was crazy, but um, I haven't, I probably was crazy in a way, I don't know. Um, I haven't, I haven't regretted it. I haven't regretted it since. I would say the, I don't really do, do I do, I try not to do regrets, but the only, what I have regretted if I, I've, I've, I guess in some ways I've regretted doing some of the coaching that I've done with some of the organisations that I've done. Um, given that I have joined in recent years, I've joined the, the parts of me back up again about trying in being much more concerted in behaving, aligning more of myself to my real self. So this kind of what I did early 2019 of um, um, kind of professionally coming out I hope that doesn't offend anyone because I genuinely mean it like a coming out process of saying okay this is the real me this is the I might show up on LinkedIn as a professional coach or whatever but actually I'm someone who cares passionately about the climate and ecological crisis and the so attending social justice crisis and we need to step up we can't keep on going with business as usual pretending this is is not happening I mean you know what the hell is going on here where were all the coaches on the planet one by three degrees is what I called it. So I, I kind of, if if I have got a regret, I regret doing some of the work for some of the clients that I did. But then I guess coming from a wholly public service background for the first 18 years of my career, it also helped open my eyes to actually what other parts of the economy were doing. And whilst there's, you know, there's good people everywhere, isn't there? There's a lot of good people trying to do what they think is good things at the time in a good way that they think is the right thing to do. At the end of the day, this bigger political economy is driving us to have totally unsustainable systems that are causing horrific externalities, as we call them, for many, many people on Earth. And so is it, is it fair to say that um, this process is more, it's almost like, becoming more you, or as you say, connecting the public self to your private self, like the real, that this is becoming, you know, more, less of a facade, less of a, less of a outside shell that you're showing to the world and, and much more the Zoe that cares for the environment, talks about caring for the environment and for social justice and all of that. So that is becoming more integrated. Yeah, I guess, and, and yeah, I mean, it's probably a bit of a cliche thing, isn't it? Maybe that's all of our life journeys trying to integrate back with ourselves, coming home to ourselves, that maybe. Um, <laughs> I can see a bit of scepticism on your face, and I'd like to know more about that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I'd uh, had kept connection between the personal and professional parts of me kept some connection and that so there were always quite a strong connected thread so that you know hence wanting to work in the NHS wanting to, to try to try to work against inequality and um genuinely make a difference in public services and um and so on um uh I also did, did a, a brief um well, about three and a half years I worked at an organization called the audit commission which had an explicit role before this conservative government abolished it had an explicit role to show up and take action on um variation and inequality really um variation in public service and inequality of opportunity and so on and, and you know I guess that there is a strong theme about about inequity and inequality um in which has always been a core thing for me so I guess I'd, I'd been I've been reasonably true to a fair amount of, of my true self, mm -hmm. but this the, the part of me that was felt utterly 
connected to the non-human world and I guess you know might classically might derogatorily call it the, the tree hugger you know I that wasn't expressed professionally <laughs> it was expressed personally you know, outside right. work but it wasn't expressed professionally and um let's face it until relatively recently you, you anyone who is sort of green or eco you just got taken stigmatized yeah Yeah, stigmatized or made fun of or belittled or Uh whatever uh and othered you know you're a sandal wearing hippie or you're this or you're Uh that and it still happens still happens you know the media still do it now if you're you know a green activist or something you know this currently they're calling people eat the eco mobs what the hell is an eco mob? Pe- people who are just trying to call out the fact that we are killing the biosphere—that's not <laughs> eco mobs. Anyway, so yeah, so I guess um, that part of me, frustratingly, I had not expressed anywhere near as fully as I could. Well, certainly not in, the, in my professional life. I'd expressed it more fully in my more fully in my personal life, but not mm-hmm. as much as I wanted. And um, yeah, maybe, let, maybe let's shed some light on the coachings part of that of your biography so i think there's a joke in the in the coaching industry like where, what did coaches do during the financial crisis they sent their invoices uh what did coaches do during the climate crisis they sent their invoices um so in other terms coaches on the one hand side i think one of the deformation professionnel is that coaches tend to think about purpose and and you know meaning in life calling uh, what would you do if you were not afraid all that kind of stuff but on the sometimes on a very indiv- individualistic yeah. uh, way, like to say, you know, I can help you get the next career step. I can help you save your marriage. I can help you prevent a burnout. So, which is all fair and all good. But on the other hand, it is something that is kind of on a nucleus, on a sample size of one, maybe one person to work with. Um, and I think you have also gone through this process. Probably found yourself working for some companies where where you thought, hmm. Do we need this company on the place on this planet? Right? Is it really helpful? Um, like all of us, I think as, as coaches, we we always have that kind of boundary. And then something happened in your life um, where you where you said no more or much less, very very different. And I think it had to do with the death of your mom. So sorry if I'm putting that so together in a, in a compact way, but can you make sense of that for us? Uh, I will attempt to. If there's, <laughs> there's quite a few different questions, and there are different aspects in that. Um, so, yeah, I guess I guess it's uh, linked to this to this um, knocking down the walls between the different parts of us, isn't it? And, and, and trying to this. I kind of don't like the phrase when it sounds really arrogant and I really don't mean it like this, but trying to live in one's truth. Like, you know, if you actually try and align your behaviors to what you actually believe, it's probably the hardest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And we're all hypocrites because the system we live in makes it incredibly hard to actually enact our values and beliefs in reality. Well, yeah, I think. Um, I'm in a phase of questioning myself a lot at the moment, Carsten. So forgive me if I'm just literally questioning myself live. I'm questioning myself. I love that. A lot, a lot of things. Um, but yeah, so um, uh, I'm sure you and others listening know when when we uh, 
have a major thing and it happens in our life. Like, uh, uh, bereavement is one of the most major things, isn't it, that can happen to us. And obviously losing one or both parents is massive. And I um, I lost my dad when I was 28, um, which had big impacts on me then. Um, and uh, one of my, one of the many things my dad used to say, um, is I think I think is a Talmudic expression from his um um, in Jewish upbringing and heritage and so on, was um, that there's no pockets in a shroud. Um, so I, Say it again, sorry? The, there's no pockets in a shroud. You know, the shroud being a shroud being like a, um, a fabric or a dress or a cloak that, that you put on a dead body. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Same, same saying in German, yes. Yeah, so you can't take it with you. You know, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't take it with you. And, and um, uh, um, so I, I remember that from quite a young, a young age and... Um, so I'm sure that's I'm sure that's had um, impacts on me, um, not being not being hugely focused on on stuff. You know, um, uh, I'm sure that's been one of the impacts on me. But and then um, I was lucky enough to have one of the most amazing mums on earth, um, and uh, cared for my uh, mum when she got polio on polio before she died at the end of August in 2018. Um, and as I said, mum was um, a, a significant part of, of why I um, it, it had a, a deeply instilled love of nature and um, the non-human world. Um, and the combination of um, uh, caring for mum and grieving for her before she even died because she, she was I was losing her in front of me as it were um plus the um evident climate breakdown happening in front of us um though we had that you know a pretty big heat wave in 2018 um mm-hmm. and we had a um a I think it was about 15 weeks with no rain in this country or in this part where I live with um, a long, long time with no rain. And um, uh, uh, we have an allotment. That grow, we grow quite a lot of our own veg and fruit and stuff, and um, which I love and is a huge, big, massively important part of my personal well-being and resilience is being able to get my hands in the soil and grow stuff and harvest it and eat it. <laughs> um, and um, that summer was very striking in the heat and the lack of rain and how hard it was to keep crops alive even on a tiny scale you know and I'm totally aware that with the privileges of living in this country and um having enough money to buy food you know actually you're not dependent on wholly what you grow but being someone who's connect feels connected to the soil and plants and when you know that you have to artificially water stuff to keep it alive and I, you know, was viscerally aware of what that means if, you know, everything from bringing home the connection between the, the utter basics of, you know, we rely on the soil. We are completely dependent on soil. And how many people listening to this are thinking every day of our life depends on topsoil? And it does. Humanity depends on a few key things. Topsoil is one of them. Um, ocean health is another. You know, we depend on, our very being depends on that. We come from the soil, we go back to the soil, as we know. Um, but we need to remember it. Uh, and uh, this, we need to stay viscerally connected to that, I think. It's absolutely vital. Um, so that was a, a strong reminder of, you know, having 
Um, and even just like ecological, I feel so ecologically so connected to the to my ecology um, at a very local level. So seeing the streams, not seeing the water levels in in any streams and stuff just drying up, and and at the same time knowing that actually you have to water your crops, otherwise they are going to die. But then if you take that water, you're taking it away from the rest of nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that in itself is, I feels awful. You know, it just feels awful. Anyway, so all, all of this, this, this stuff goes on in my overthinking complex mind. <laughs> Not that my mind's any more complex than anyone else's, it isn't. Um, so this was going on whilst, whilst my mum was dying and I was looking after her and, um, uh, and still working. And, um, and then shortly after really very shortly after my mum died that um IPCC 1.5 degrees report came out so the intergovernmental panel on climate change report that came out in the autumn of 2018 that said the headline that it was all at the same time that Greta had just started the school started her striking and in terms you know we have 12 years to save the planet that was the headline it's pretty erroneous in a few ways which maybe we come on to but um yeah, so that was all happening at the same time, basically, and um, was a sense of um, a I you know I I done lots of um, community activism with a small a as in you know kind of the polite type um, and done lots of um, volunteer work in around sustainability for years like thousands of hours of it um, and a real sen- a real kind of embodied sense of okay this has made absolutely no difference. Um, everything we've done hasn't been enough. We've all we've all failed, um, and um, including me. You know, we've all, we've all failed, and we all have to do different and more. This isn't enough. Um, so then I discovered um, Extinction Rebellion and um, Nonviolent Direct Action, and also started speaking out. Um, across my profession and calling stuff out, um, hopefully in a compassionate way, but also hopefully in a truthful way about, you know, we, we can't keep going as we are, people. We just can't do this. Um, we have to speak out, we have to step up, and we have to change. We're at the transition of um, you being in a coach role to realizing what was going on the summer of drought, uh, your mom passing away, um, and then kind of coming to a realization that you need to change something coming from a small A activist to a big A activist. Yeah, um, that's right. And I guess um, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports and um, learning about Extinction Rebellion both both kind of played a part in that as well, in that whilst I... Um, would think had think thought of myself as someone who was kind of environmentally aware and you know, reasonably well informed. I guess um, I had made the naive, well, very naive error of trusting that world leaders would actually do something. Um, back when the Paris Agreement was signed, I remember I was, I was aware where the Paris Agreement. I was. I remember when it, it when we heard in the news that it had been signed. I, I you know, cried tears of joy and relief, thinking, "Thank goodness, they're going to do something." And and I naively trusted that they would. 
And of course, they have utterly failed, just like all the other COPs previously failed, and now we're at 20, COP26, which is also failing. Um, and um, so that realisation of that, you know, they're, they're really not coming to save us, are they? Um, and uh, also watching um, a talk by uh, Dr. Gail Bradbrook, one of the co-founders of, Extin of Extinction Rebellion, which I watched in December 2018, um, which is the training and, and recruitment talk, if you want to call it that, which makes it sound like some sort of weird thing. But anyway, it isn't. It's called uh, a talk called Heading for Extinction and What to Do About It, which is just a summary of the climate and ecological science and the social science around um, nonviolent direct action and how it's got the potential to drive change and how you get involved in it, basically. So I watched that on YouTube in the December and um, the combination of, of that and then doing lots of my own research made me realise that actually me and 99% well, of the rest of the population had no real idea about how serious this stuff was. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I don't think, and I don't think I had a real appreciation of um, basic things like feedback, climate feedback loops and tipping points and where that how you know, how we how that canon is is on the edge of taking us to a completely irreversible different state of climate for millennia to come i had no deep uh, deep understanding of that prior to, to that and and i think sadly whilst there's much much higher awareness around um, climate, climate change, climate break, breakdown, um, uh, etc. Much higher awareness than there was. I think there's still a lot of gaps in awareness, media, and education, and so on around the the real severity and the real irreversibility, and that, you know just this notion of feedback loops and tipping points like in that people are bandying around in the conversations around cop oh well, it's 2.8 degrees or we can get down to 2.4 and maybe maybe if they actually implement what they're saying we might get to 1.8 the majority of the people talking about this include the media and general public i'm afraid i really don't think they have any mean an understanding of what that really means uh -huh. this is all non-linear you know we humans pretend like the world is linear, like the shelving units I can see behind your head and, you're, <laughs> and the shelving units. You know, we think the world is linear like humans make it into. We manufacture linear things, yeah? Uh -huh. We think life is linear. No complex systems are linear. They're all non-linear non and it's all interconnected games of Jenga. You know, you take the pieces out and then it gets wobbly and eventually you take one last piece out and the whole thing collapses into a new stable state, which is all the pieces on the floor. That's the new stable state, and that's what that's what the Earth systems do. That you know, you push them and push them and push them, and they have a credible ability to have like um, a self-regulating, and then they start wobbling, and the wobbles get bigger, and then it flips into a new stable state. It's like um, yeah, so we're seeing that all over the planet. We're seeing the wobbles of that. It's a bit like when you. Um, like the, we've got the jet stream. The jet stream is wobbling all over the place because it, having the, a, stable, a stable jet stream relies on a temperature differential between the poles and the equator. And that temperature differential is breaking down um, because the poles are warming at um, 
three or four times faster than the average global heating. And, and we've had these ridiculous high temperatures in the Arctic, you know, we've had, was it 38 degrees C or something we've had in the Arctic? I mean, these crazy, crazy situations. And um, obviously the Arctic ice is uh, melting at historic rates and we're um, uh, predicted to have Arctic ice-free summers by 2034, potentially, which means that we'll get into even more abrupt climate change and uh, uh, climate breakdown. I shouldn't use the phrase climate change, it's, it's far too innocuous. Um, but, you know, we are completely out of predictable, um, predictable safe climate that we've had for the 12,000 years that humanity's developed uh, and developed civilization, as we call it. We're completely out of that. And... Um, uh, yeah, the systems, the stable systems are are wobbling and flickering, and those wobbles and flickers are telling us that it's like the Jenga tower. You know, you don't have to do too much more to it, and it all it'll flip into its yeah. new new state basically. And, and you know, everything's connected. It's these are all really complex systems, and they're non-linear. And um, there's a still far, far, far too little awareness of all of this cost. And, and we just bandy these numbers around like 1.5, 1.8, 2. And it all sounds, it sounds logical, rational, quantifiable, linear. And it, it's, it's, yeah, scientifically based as much as the science is there, which is huge amounts of earth science now. There's masses and masses of it. Um, but we know it's non-linear. We know a number of these tipping points across Earth are already active. There's already evidence to show that, you know, the Jenga towers are wobbling. Um, and there's so much that is missed out of the communications by governments, media, you know, education institutions, etc. There's, there's, we just need to go to a whole other level of understanding about this stuff um, really quickly. So I think we've covered a broad array of different topics in your life and what you're passionate about and what we all should be passionate about. Now, there's in coaching, we know there's two basic motivations. There's away from and there's towards, right? And I think there's a very strong away from motivation, um, what we want to try to avoid. The towards, I think that's harder to grasp, right? The people assemblies, the global assemblies, that makes sense but doesn't sound like a very speedy process either, right? Hmm. So any, what, I mean, where do you get your positivity or optimism from? I mean, just that, is it just the away from, or what are you striving towards? Um, thank you. I guess um, it gets battered, you know, being really honest, it, just, it gets very battered very regularly. Um, And at the same time, I'm I'm a pretty stubborn person. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I'm a pretty stubborn person. I'm surprised. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure some of that is ridiculously naive. Think, you know, there's problems, probably some ridiculous, grandiose, arrogant in there. You know, who the hell am I to think I can do X, Y, Z? And, and I don't think, you know, none of us can do much on our own, can we? But there is, you know, the famous, the famous, um, quote uh you know never doubt a small group of people can change the world because it's indeed it's the only thing that ever has you know that's it is one of my favorite quotes and it, it is indeed true isn't it because small small groups of people start start waves start patterns start movements you know like extinction rebellion for example with hundreds of thousands of people across 70 countries and started by a dozen people in the uk 
uh-huh. uh, three or four years ago. So it's like, uh, and of course, there's loads of other examples of incredible movement um, around the world. Um, and so I guess I, I go towards or stay stubborn to the belief that another world is possible. It's really hard to see see it sometimes, but it is possible because, at least conceptually, it's possible because we haven't, this system that we're in is, you know, it's so new. It's so, in, in, not mind geological time, but in human history, it's very, you know, it's, it's like the last half hour, yeah, in human history, if you think about it. So it doesn't have to be like this. And I've, always, I've been a social constructivist as long as I can remember what it, you know, as long as I, when I first knew what it meant. And it's like, there is no such thing as um, uh, the economy. And you can't pick up half a pound of, you know, a kilogram of economy. You can pick up half a kilogram of soil and you know what you, you know, uh-huh. it has meaning and it has. But um, so we can change, the system can change. It's not immutable. I think that's, I try and hold on to that. And there are many, there are many movements, thinkers, writers, doers who are working away for a different world. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess it's about, it's about staying, holding on to that when, and I think COVID is, you know, that the sort of isolation of COVID has kind of made, made a lot of thing, things feel harder because you can feel more atomized, more isolated um, when actually, you know there are mi- there are millions of people working around the world, um, from incredible indigenous people in uh, groups in uh, uh, struggling in many many global south countries through to um, sunrise movement in the states, Fridays for Future, Extinction Rebellion, Insulate Britain, um, the Green New De- Green New Deal movements. There's loads and loads of different movements who are, who um, and degrowth movement etc etc. There are just not enough of us yet, <laughs> and there are. I think there aren't enough people who um, who are prepared to take more risk. You know, I think we um, we need to to kind of calibrate our risk taking. Um, in that, we are now in a situation where you know, it can't. Uh, Ecology, ec- ecologies are, are are collapsing in parts of the world, you know, that um and I, I wish we, we could do several more podcasts on some of this to be honest, Carsten. But you know, for example, there is a abs- there is a tipping point in the oceans. That don't, and we mustn't forget the oceans are seven tenths of the earth, but we never talk about them seven tenths of the time, and we probably really should, frankly, because they're seven tenths of the surface of the earth, and without healthy oceans, we are gone. Um and there is an absolute chemical tipping point for most life in the oceans, and that's a pH of 7.95. So oceans are acidifying and have been acidifying since, um, I think, about the 50s or 60s, I think, but certainly in the last 30 years, they've been acidifying more and more. And so ocean pH has been falling, and it's um, when it gets to 7.95, um, animals, creatures with um, uh, backbones, creatures with shells, uh, will dissolve. They can't live, um, and that will you know, fundamentally will we will lose most life in the ocean. Um, and we've already lost fifty percent of all marine life. And healthy oceans create, um, I think, 
half or more of our oxygen on earth that we breathe we're again most of us don't realize that and a lot of food for billions of people and also um, healthy oceans sequester huge amounts of carbon so there's all these things you know, we we just there there isn't there there are other ways to live we don't have to it doesn't have to be like this and there are you know there are if we look to the edges of the edges of change, you know, we know that's coaching. We can look to the edges. We don't look in the middle. We look at the edges. And there are there are edges of people doing incredible things. Um, it's just not enough of us yet, and it's not moving fast enough. Um, so spreading the word is one of the key things to get people inspired yeah. to do something about it. it. It's absolutely it's absolutely vital. Yeah, and and, um, and it, seeing seeing through the. The, the the myths that we've been told about how the world works um, and how we have to have, you know, we basically have to feed the economy when actually the economy needs to feed us. That's kind of one of the first steps, I think, isn't it? See, see, through, see through this, see it for what it is, and then work from the basis of how the world really works, which is uh, complex, complex systems and um, that justice it has to be at the heart of that because 74% of people on earth exist on less than $10 a day. And um, they're suffering first and of course least of all of these, you know, colonially driven um, consequences that we're now experiencing. So there's a lot, there's a lot to fight peacefully for. Absolutely. No. <laughs> <laughs> no question about that. Um, last last question from my side, which would be the standard question in any coaching conversation. Anything I haven't asked you yet that would be important? I'm sitting there thinking, my God, because you probably don't want to ask me anything else. <laughs> um, I, th um, I don't know about what, I, I think you've asked me lots of amazing questions and thank you. Maybe there's something about what next, the kind of where where next. Um, That's a great question, Zoe. So what next? Yeah, what next, where next? Um, well, um, as I think you know, because we've talked before, but um, I I and six other women face uh, a trial, face a two-week jury trial next November, so in a year's time for um, carefully, peacefully, non-violently breaking some of the windows of Barclays headquarters in Canary Wharf in London to call out their funding of fossil fuels. They're the worst fossil fuel funder in Europe and they've spent 100 and invested in inverted commas, 144 billion on fossil fuels since the Paris Agreement, knowingly causing death and destruction. Um, so we face a jury trial next uh, November in London for two weeks and we potentially face prison for that. So, um, That is one of the what next for me is um, with my colleagues, you know, doing our damnedest to defend ourselves in that jury trial so that the, hopefully justice emerges and that we're found not guilty because what's really on trial is the behaviour of the banks and the economic in the political economy. Um, and um, I guess more of what next is, is um, yeah, do, doing in my own partial and imperfect way trying to find a way through um find find a way through the truth that um change happens through a complex ecology of change there is no one answer 
And you know, I notice if if I if I get feel like I'm drawn to the this is the one thing that will make the difference. There is no one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no one thing that we need. We need massive shifts on so many fronts. We need way more truth telling. We need lots more direct action, peaceful, nonviolent direct action. We need lots more work in solidarity within communities, across communities, across the world. We need better democracy, transparent democracy. We need working and community resilience. There's, we need to work on lots and lots of fronts. Um, so I guess my next steps is, is is holding and working through the consequences of the actions I've already taken, no doubt taking some more actions and asking myself those continual questions of, of what is mine to do amongst all of that. I don't. I think it's a never-ending question. I don't think I'm ever, it's not going to come to an end. It's always going to be a shifting and question and answer dialogue in me of what is mine to do in all of this. And I hope that other people will maybe ask themselves that question if they're listening to this. And what is mine to do? What um, And not just what is mine to do, but what is the most that I can do? And that I can look back and think I did everything I could for this complex system to shift in directions that can be more hopeful for everyone and all the non-human species on earth and we can save what we can in as just a way as possible. I think that's a very powerful closing statement for this podcast and I have the strong feeling that there will be a part two <laughs> because <laughs> I'm sure that we covered only 10% of what needs to be covered here Zoe. So thank you so much for taking us on a journey through your brain, your heart, um, your life story, uh, your actions. Very impressive, very humbling. Thank you so much, Zoe. Thank you, Karsten. Thank you for the time. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Talk soon. Bye-bye. That was Zoe Cohen. Talking to her always leaves me a bit delusioned. Um, but also it feels very true um, and it feels like deep inside, actually, if we are honest to ourselves, or at least I feel if I'm honest to myself, I know that um, I would agree with most of it with the analysis. Um, it's just that it's becoming so big that one can feel overwhelmed. And um, I think the, the art is how to take that all in, how to acknowledge it without getting frustrated, without getting overwhelmed, uh, without getting depressed at the end of the day. Because as she said, there is a bit of a grievance process going on with this. And um, how can you remain positive um, in the face of all the things that are not going well, that are not going in the right direction? And how can we become or maintain a certain constructive attitude in building a future, uh, a a form of capitalism that is more sustainable, um, a form of um, economics where all parts of mankind can uh, equally kind of participate and contribute. Um, How is that possible? And what are steps towards that? I think that is the the big question. And and for now, let's leave us here and um, share your thoughts with me. I would love to hear what you think. Um, drop me a line at karsten.rath at leadershipchoices.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, drop me a note. Um, please uh, follow us on uh, iTunes or on all the other um, podcast platforms where you're listening or YouTube. 
And um, yeah, so looking forward to stay in touch, looking forward to your thoughts. Stay well and uh, see you next time. Bye-bye. This was an episode of Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world, powered by leadership choices. If you want to give us feedback, please send an email to leaderstalk at leadershipchoices.com. Thank you for listening.